Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Back in Interview 18, I spoke with Beckett Cook about his journey to faith. I began this message by retelling his story before delving in to answer seven important questions about same-sex attracted Christians, including how should same-sex attracted Christians think of themselves? Isn't the Christian sexual ethic harmful to gays and lesbians? Is having same-sex feelings a sin? Can someone go from gay to straight? Do people choose to be gay or are they born gay? As a Christian, how should I treat gay people? And last of all, how can we support same-sex attracted folks who choose Christ over their sexual gratification? Here now is podcast episode 82, Questions About Gay and Lesbian Christians. I want to begin by telling you the story of Beckett Cook. I think his story can help us think through this issue a little bit. He grew up as a Catholic in Dallas, Texas, and... What he likes to say is that his parents were very good Catholics because he was the last of eight children. And he was baptized and confirmed. He was an altar boy. He went through the motions, but he never felt a connection to God. And it wasn't um, really something that changed his life, at least his internal life, much. He remembers that in elementary school, he started to feel attracted to boys. And he remembers that he knew that was wrong and that it was something he wanted to, that he thought would go away over time. And then in, in high school, he, he still was feeling this way towards, his, uh, towards other guys, and he thought it was just a phase. And then he went off to a liberal college, and he had professors who were secular humanists, basically people that didn't believe in God. And most of the students also were secular humanists. And he remembers that in his second year of college, the idea of God started to seem implausible. Like, eh, I don't really know. I don't think, yeah, that's probably, not, that's probably not true. By the time he graduated college, he was more or less an atheist. He just was an unbeliever. And after college, he moved to Tokyo, Japan. And when he was there, he fell in love with a guy. And That, for him, was a defining moment where he came out to his family and to friends, and he started to consciously identify himself as a homosexual. That was, in other words, not just his attraction, but his his orientation and his identity were wrapped up in being gay. He moved to L.A., and he fell in with a group of like-minded friends who also didn't believe in God, and who had two main goals in life. One, to make a mark on the world. And two, to find true love. So that's what he and his friends were all after as young folks in L.A. And it turns out that the group he fell in with, they were all amazingly successful. They were actors, writers, producers. They won Oscars, Emmys, Golden Globes. One of them even got their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And Beckett enjoyed himself immensely. I mean, it was just an exciting time in his life. And nobody ever talked about God, and he didn't feel hostility towards Christianity. 
Christians didn't really talk to him. He didn't have any interactions. And so he didn't, he just like, he knew there were Christians and he was gay, so he couldn't be one. So it was kind of irrelevant to him. And he had this question though, in his mind, what is the meaning of life? Where do I come from? Where am I going? You know, that, those kinds of deep philosophical questions, like, why am I here? And these questions just really started pressing in on him. And he remembers going to a lot of thought-provoking plays. He's big in the scene in L.A. and in New York. And he goes to all these big plays by these brilliant playwrights to, to find the answers. And he, and he would feel like he's getting close. And then the play would end and he wouldn't quite get the answer he was looking for. Or he would read Russian novels trying to find, you know, maybe they have the truth about the meaning of life. He went to therapy. He was so frustrated. He went to therapy for five years. At the end of five years, he just turned to his therapist and said, what is the meaning of life? You tell me. What is it? And the therapist said, what do you think the meaning of life is? And that was, that was his last time going to the therapist. He quit. He, he felt uh, somewhat disillusioned. He had at this point in his life, many relationships with men. They all seemed to follow the same cycle, lasting about two years. And there was a honeymoon period, and then the move in, and then it fell apart. And then he would get in another relationship. But he, but he was having a fabulous time. You know, he went to the Oscars. He went to the Emmys. He went to all the after parties. He met all these famous people. He met Tom Hanks. Uh, you know, he was, he was living the life. He did everything. He lived in other countries. He lived in, like I said, Tokyo. He lived in L.A., lived in New York, lived in Vienna. He lived in all these places and absorbed a real sense of fashion. He became a, a production designer, but he still felt an emptiness, a longing. And so one time he went to Paris for Fashion Week, and he rented an apartment there for the week. And this, for him, was the defining moment of his life, or one, one of the defining moments of his life, as he tells the story. Uh, and and I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of details. He tells it himself. Look him up on YouTube. You can watch the 45-minute version. This is going to be like the six, seven, eight-minute version here. He talks about how he was at this fashion show. He went to the party afterwards. He looked over the crowd of joyful, excited people with their champagne, dancing, with music playing, and he had this sudden feeling of overwhelming emptiness. And he just left the party abruptly and went home and he stayed up all night asking himself the question, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I have succeeded, I have achieved, I have reached this level of status and influence and uh, levels of friendships with people. What do I do now? And then he went back home to LA and those thoughts kind of faded. And six months later, he found himself in a coffee shop in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, which is a very trendy place. And he and his friend were there, and they turned to the side, and they saw Bibles on a table. And there were five people there having a Bible study. And, and he was just so shocked. I mean, who are these people, and why did they bring Bibles, and, and what do they think they're doing? I mean, he had never seen a Bible in L.A. his whole life. It was just like, what? It? And so his friend starts daring him. He's like, Go talk to them. Find out what they're doing. And it, was like, it was like studying a foreign species or something. So he turned to them and he said, 
So, so what are you guys, Christians? What are you into? Like, I was a Catholic once upon a time, I, I, but I, that was so long, I don't even remember what you believe. What do you believe? And so the, they started talking to him, they started witnessing to him. They talked to him for two hours, sharing the gospel and sharing their beliefs with him. And then he came and asked the big question, well, what do you think about me? What do you think about gay, gay people? And the guy just turned to him and very matter-of-factly said, well, it's, it's a sin. It's, you know, it's something you shouldn't do. And he just continued on talking. And he invited him to church. He said, hey, why don't you come to church? They exchanged numbers. And that Sunday, for whatever reason, Beckett woke up on time and he went to that church. Now, this is somebody that just a short time before this would have mocked a Christian, would have ridiculed them and been offended that they said his lifestyle was in any way substandard, right? And so he goes, he goes to the church. It's in a high school auditorium. He gets there, and as soon as he walks in, there, there's a greeter, a, a woman, and she says to him, welcome, we love you. And he was just like, whoa, okay, cool. And he comes in a little further, and he hears Christian music playing, he cringes. Is that Christian? And then, he, and then he listens and he says, it's not that bad. And he comes in and he, he finds a seat and, you know, the music's playing and everything. The pastor gets up and he preaches for a solid hour, expository on Romans 7, verse by verse. That's the part where Paul talks about, like, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And the whole time, Beckett is on the edge of his seat. Everything the, the preacher's saying, he's like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And when he ended, after an hour, he's saying to himself, don't stop. Keep going. And then he made an altar call and said, if anybody wants prayer, you want to change your life, you want prayer for something else, come, come to one of the sides here. We have a prayer team available. The lights dim, the music goes up. And Beckett's sitting there in his seat. And he's thinking to himself, do I go or do I stay? And he, he really wrestled with himself because he, he, he knew the guy that brought him there would probably see him going and feel smug. And he's like, well, I don't want to give him that <laughs> satisfaction. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, I'm here. Let me go. So he goes up and the stranger who he'd never met before says to him, what can I pray for you for? And he says, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. So the guy laid hands on him and prayed for him. And Beckett remembers that it was very powerful and it seemed very long, <laughs> the prayer. And it was intense. And he thought to himself, how does this stranger love me so much? And he thanked him and he went back to his chair and the music was still playing. He's sitting in his seat. He's mulling over what just happened. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon him in this just bizarre experience and he said that he felt like Isaiah, I mean, later on he read Isaiah and read about Isaiah 6, how Isaiah saw God and he felt undone. He says that's how he felt. He said that in that moment he felt like he saw God's holiness, his own sinfulness, and he just wept for 20 minutes, shaking, crying the hardest he cried in his whole life. In a moment he understood the meaning of life. In a moment he knew he could no longer live as a gay man. Just a realization came to him. He said to himself, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a child of God now. I don't care about this anymore. I've just met the creator of the universe. 
And so anyway, he goes home and he takes a nap. And, and then the whole thing happened again. The Holy Spirit, God, and all this. And he jumps out of bed and he, God shows him more of his glory. And he says to God, all right, all right, I give you everything. I, I, I'm not holding anything back. I'm all in. <laughs> I give you everything. That was September of 2009. Uh, it's now 2017, so that's eight years ago this happened. Of course, he's still a production designer, so he goes back to work, and he tells, and he's, and he's so on fire. He tells, God's real. Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, this, this Christianity is all real. And they're all just like, what is this guy on, right? And, and they started asking him, like, you can't be gay and a Christian. Like, what, what is that? That's not even a category. And he's like, well, I'm, I don't really think of myself as gay anymore. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm also not attracted to women. <laughs> so, like, I don't know where that leaves me. And so he's trying to, to work all that out, and he has, he has worked that out. And I want to show you, there, he gave a uh, talk at Biola, and in his talk there, he goes for like 45 minutes, but then he answers questions. He says, well, these are the most common questions that people ask me. And so I just want to play you a little sample, like two, three minutes here of his answer, because it blew me away what he said. Five, we're, I'm going to go over kind of five points or questions that I get asked all the time. And the first one is, um, isn't it unfair that you have to be alone? A lot of people ask me this. Um, Christians and non-Christians ask me this, but um, they say, isn't it, isn't it unfair that you have to be alone for the rest of your life? And, excuse me. Um, and my response to that is no. Um, what's unfair is that Jesus had to be beaten, crucified, and die for my sin. What's unfair is that God had grace on a wicked sinner and reconciled me to himself and gave me eternal life. What's unfair is that I get to have an intimate relationship with the king of the universe. What's unfair is that on the last day, Jesus Christ is going to declare me not guilty. That's unfair. Um, so I never feel, I never feel like I'm being cheated out of something. Um, I honestly, like, I have no, I, ne I have no desire to be in a relationship again um, with, a, with a man. Um, and I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm being cheated. I, I have the most amazing relationship in the world um, with Jesus. And... So, yeah, amen. So, <laughs> so, as Paul says, as you all know, um, in Philippians, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed that is to be revealed to us. Um, and he goes on in 2 Corinthians, um, and this is how I feel all the time about this issue in my life. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So is it unfair? No, absolutely not. Um, I feel like I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, even though I don't believe in luck. Um, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, seriously. Um, 
One, the second question I get a lot is, well, actually, this is a friend of mine asked me this question. She is culturally Jewish, very smart. I was really surprised that she even knew to ask this question. But she said, she asked me to explain to her one night my faith and what it meant. And um, she said, okay, so if you're saved now, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, why don't you now go out and date a guy? Why can't you have a relationship with a guy now? Because you're saved. And, and my answer to that is, uh, God, when I got saved, God gave me his Holy Spirit, and he gave me a new heart and a new, new desires. And I'm a new creation in Christ. And so it goes against my new nature. Um, I kind of liken it to falling in love with somebody. Um, that first kind of, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but you're young, but that, that first kind of period of falling in love with somebody and it's just absolutely just like this magical, you only have eyes for that one person. And so it would be like falling in love with somebody and in like the first week, cheating on them. Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. It just would go against, like, your nature. It would go against who you're in love with. And um, so I, um, again, Paul says, um, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new one has come. And that's what I told her. I, I, I'm, I told her I'm a new creation. I mean, of course, um, I still struggle with, with same-sex attraction and desire, and, um, but I'm, I have to say it's God's had grace on that, and, and he, he's, he's um, really minimized that in my life, that desire. What an incredible perspective to have. Uh, some of those scriptures that he quotes are scriptures that I've read a thousand times, and I'm like, yeah, it does apply. It does apply to every kind of situation where we struggle with temptation or affliction. Uh, here's, here's somebody who has decided to remain single, to remain celibate because of Christ. He's given up his sexuality. And he's done that because he's found something better. And I think that is just such a powerful, inspiring example to us. So what I want to do with you and what remains here is go through some questions. I don't know how many I'll get through, but I've prepared some. And what I, what I do for this part, since I am not same-sex attracted, I'm leaning on people who are and who are Christian to explain to me what that's like. That's why I shared with you Beckett's story, because he knows it from the inside. I'm just looking in from the outside. Here's another example. is a man named Sam Alberry or all, buddy. He's uh, British. Uh, the question is, how should same-sex attracted Christians think of themselves? Right? So let's say you're attracted to people of the same gender, but you're a Christian. So what then? This is what Sam Albury says. He says, the gospel of Jesus is wonderful news for someone who's experiencing, who experiences same-sex attraction. I use the term same-sex attraction just then because an immediate challenge is how I describe myself. In Western culture today, the obvious term for someone with homosexual feelings is gay. But in my experience, 
This often refers to far more than someone's sexual orientation. It has come to describe an identity and a lifestyle. When someone says they're gay, or for that matter, lesbian or bisexual, they normally mean that as well as being attracted to someone of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves. And it's for this reason that I tend to avoid using the term. It sounds clunky to describe myself as, quote, someone who experiences same-sex attraction, end quote. But describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Then he uses an example. Take another kind of appetite. I love meat. A plate without a slab of animal on it, it just doesn't feel right to me. But my love for meat does not mean I would want someone to think that carnivore was the primary category through which to understand me. It is part of the picture, but does not get to the heart of who I am. So I prefer to talk in terms of being someone who experiences homosexual feelings or same-sex attraction for short. Now, whether somebody who's going through same-sex attraction or who only feels attracted to the same sex, wants to call themselves gay or not. That, I'm not I don't have a, a horse in that race, you know, you know what I mean? Um, Sam Albury is saying like that, that's not something that he's comfortable calling himself because he doesn't want to get lumped in with the political agenda of being gay and the lifestyle of being gay because he's not participating in either one of those. Other people like Wesley Hill say, yeah, I am gay and I'm a Christian, but it's always Christian is my identity. Gay is how I describes my sexual attraction and my orientation, but it doesn't describe my, my fundamental identity. And so, and so there's some disagreement among people about that. But what's clear is that, one, you live chastely. If you're experiencing sexual same-sex attraction, you live chastely. You live uh, a, a celibate lifestyle. And two, your identity is Christ, not your sexual orientation. That goes for hetero or homosexual people. Question two, isn't the Christian ethic harmful to gays and lesbians? Have you ever heard that one before? Sometimes people say that Christian sexuality is narrow-minded and intolerant and stifling. They argue that it's not healthy to deny who you really are or repress your identity. They say it can be psychologically harmful to believe you're defective or perverted. But here we see a hidden assumption. There's a hidden assumption here, I'm convinced. The Christian critic reduces human flourishing to sexual expression of their sexual appetites. But if your identity is in Christ, all the rest pales in comparison. I mean, think about other impulses. Selfishness, you have to repress that. Laziness, you have to fight against that. Outbursts of anger, you've got to tamp that down. Right? And a thousand other sinful desires that flame up in us from time to time. We're always repressing ourselves in a bunch of different... And I'm thankful you repress yourself in my presence because it's, that's what etiquette is. And that's what consideration is a lot of times. Right? I mean, if you're sitting next to me and you've got a sneeze and you just, you just let it out and you spray me, you've expressed your, your impulse, but you've just slimed me. You know what I mean? Like... Use a hand or use your elbow or 
a handkerchief or I don't think people carry those anymore. But if you're part of the new humanity created in Christ Jesus for good works, then you should strive to express outrageous cross-shaped love in anticipation of the coming kingdom. That's who you are. If you are a child of God, that's your fundamental identity. Yeah, you may experience same-sex attraction. You may experience opposite-sex attraction. But that's not who you are. That's something about you. It's not insignificant, but it's not who you are. Who you are is defined based on Christ. You're a kingdom citizen who happens to struggle with overeating. You're a Christ follower who is tempted with pornography. You're a child of God who experiences same-sex attraction. Sex is not the pinnacle of human experience. Receiving God's love and sharing it with others, that's the pinnacle of human experience. And that is what will characterize us in the age to come when God makes everything wrong with the world right. That love will permeate the world. It's not going to be a big orgy, so far as I can tell from the prophecies in the Bible. But there is going to be love in a biblical sense where you're giving yourself for someone else, not taking from them. The old script of Christian intolerance and rejection of same-sex attraction is far from universal. This is how Alberry explained. Oh, by the way, he's a pastor, too, in England. I forgot to mention that. This is how he describes coming out to his church. He says, It has now been a few years since I shared about the issue of sexuality publicly with my church family. Again, it has been a great blessing to have done so. There has been a huge amount of support. People asking how they can help and encourage me in this issue, and many saying that they are praying for me daily. Others have said how much it means to them that I would share something like this. It has also been a great encouragement to me that it does not seem to have defined how others see me. Aside from the expressions of love and support, business was back to normal very quickly. So this, this idea that Christians are all a bunch of hateful bigots, I mean... Look, that's not, maybe that happens, and I'm sorry when that happens. That's not right. But if somebody's struggling with same-sex attraction, but they're a Christian, then that person is a sister. That person's a brother. And that person needs our support and our encouragement to stay true to God, to stay true to what God says is right and wrong. Question three is, having same-sex feelings a sin? Here we need to distinguish between a temptation and a sin. Attraction, whether it's same sex or opposite sex, is something we have to manage. You have to manage your attractions. I have to manage my attractions. If you're married, you're not allowed to have, follow sexual attraction wherever it leads you. Right? It's limited to the marriage. Likewise, single men and women need to take their sexual appetites captive to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Finding someone attractive and fantasizing about him or her are two totally different situations. One, you, you, you feel the pull, the attraction. The other, you take that attraction and you go into a fantasy in your mind about it or into an active physical situation with that person. Those are two totally different things. The former is the temptation. The latter is the sin. Are you going to have same-sex feelings in the kingdom? Were there same-sex attractions before the fall? No. Which kind of leads us to the next question. Can someone go from gay to straight? Sometimes sexual appetites change. For nothing will be impossible with God. I love that verse. That's uh, Luke 1.37. That's the angel 
speaking to Mary. She's like, how can I have a child without having sex with a man? He's like, nothing's going to be impossible with God, Mary. You know, like, it'll be fine. He'll work it out. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, sweet name, for example, initially lived as a lesbian for many years before becoming a Christian. Today, she's married to a man. You can read her journey in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, very tantalizing title. Uh, first couple chapters are her story, which, which I've read very, uh, very good. Jackie Hill Perry is a, a girl also that thought of herself in very masculine terms and engaged in multiple relationships with girls. However, after she turned her life over to Christ, she changed, and now she's married to a man as well. So you can't tell me you can't change. Those are two people that changed. Although miracles may be preferable, sometimes therapy can also help. And there's a therapist by the name of Mark Yarhouse who wrote a book, Homosexuality, the Use of Scientific Research in the Church's Moral Debate. And what he says is, after studying people who are attempting to change their sexual um, attraction, he found that some change along a spectrum is possible. So if, instead of looking at it as same-sex attracted, opposite-sex attractive, you looked at it instead of as a spectrum in between there. He says, yeah, people do move along the spectrum. But it is not universal. Not everyone is able to do that, even if they're really motivated, even if they pray a lot. He comes from a Christian perspective, this guy and not a full reversal of sexual orientation. In other words, even people who end up finding the opposite sex attractive and even get married, that they still have to manage same-sex attraction. They still have to, they have to control themselves in that situation. Thus, many just have to live with same-sex attraction. I mean, I'm not going to promise that every single person that prays about this is going to find healing. I believe healing is available. I told you two examples of it. But... If it doesn't happen, then you got to live with it. These people need our love and respect for their stand, not our badgering to get married or healed. Resources for gay Christians looking to remain single for Christ can be found at livingout.org. That's uh, Sam Alberry's website. He has video testimonies on there of a number of folks who, because of Christ, have chosen singleness and these people, as far as I'm concerned, they're rock stars. You know what I mean? Like, these, these are, it's, it's heroic to see any person who struggles with any sin say no to the flesh because of Christ. Anytime I see that, I'm impressed. Question five. Do people choose to be gay or are they born gay? Oh, boy. That's a juicy one, huh? As far as I know, nobody chooses their sexual attraction. Again, my knowledge is very limited. But so far as I know, you don't choose. I mean, I'll just speak of myself for a moment here. When I went through puberty, it just kind of happened to me. I just started noticing girls, right? And that, that was my experience. It wasn't like I said to myself at 14 years old, Sean, you're a heterosexual, so you better start looking at girls' body parts differently. I didn't have that conversation with myself. It just, it just, like, I just started to feel the pull. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so I feel like that's probably how it happens for most people. I don't know if I'm representative. I didn't choose that. So, like, th then the question is, are you born that way? 
Are you born, is there a gay gene and all this, or is it nurture? Is it caused by your environment? Is it caused by hormones in utero? I have no idea. Why? <laughs> I am not an expert on this. Uh, I'm sure the scientists are working on that. Whether it's caused by nurture or nature, it's really a moot point as far as how we treat people, isn't it? Whatever the cause, if someone experiences same-sex attraction, that's where they're at. That's where they're at right now. What do they need? They need Christ. They need the gospel. And if they already believe in that, then they need encouragement to stay chaste, to stay pure, just like any other single person. needs encouragement to continue to fight the good fight day in and day out. So the pertinent question is not, what went wrong? So much as, how do I follow Christ authentically now? Question six. I only have seven questions, so we're, we're getting there. As a Christian, how should I treat gay people? Should I confront the issue right away? I actually had somebody just a week or two ago ask me this question. Uh, they, they asked me, you know, if somebody identifies themselves to me as gay or is, is sort of like openly gay, should I confront it? What if a gay couple comes to church? What do we do then? First of all, it's a blessing anytime a couple comes to church, okay? And we might have an urge to set them straight with the Bible, but that's usually not a very helpful approach. Think of it by analogy. What if you saw a new couple that came in and then you found out that they're living together but they're not married? Would you immediately confront them? Be like, hey, let me sit you down. I want to show you what 1 Corinthians 7 says about this. You need to know right now. Probably not, right? I mean, look, if God leads you to make a prophetic denouncement, I'm not going to quench your spirit. You know what I'm saying? But like, as a standard operating procedure, you, you meet somebody, they're struggling with alcohol, you don't whisk them off to the other room and share with them the verse from Ephesians that says, do not be drunk with wine. Right? So what do you do? Do you confront them immediately? Probably not. You, you may need to... They need to hear the gospel first before they would even want to change. Right? If somebody's not even a Christian, why would they change? Especially something as, as intimate as their sexual expression. LGBTQ folks often enjoy tight-knit supportive communities. Do you think they'll just give up everything because you tell them what the scriptures say on this issue? Sometimes people need to feel they belong before they're open to believe. If Christianity can provide a more compelling, more loving, more hospitable community than what they already have, then they may consider Christ. And that's our challenge. It's our challenge to welcome without saying, and your lifestyle's fine with me. We want to be welcoming to people and we want to genuinely love them. And if they want to know, we're ready to talk about it. But the priority is getting them to, to experience the love of God, to, to learn about how God's going to fix this old world, that Jesus died for our sins, and that God raised him from the dead, proving him to be the Messiah, the one who can save us. That's what they need. If Christianity can provide that more compelling, more loving, more hospitable environment, who wouldn't want to join? And look, this is all part of how Christ calls us to live anyhow, isn't it? If you're my disciples, then you will, they will know you by how you love others. Alberry says, I would rather start at the center and work outwards than start at the edge and work in. Only once living for God becomes more attractive to them than their current lifestyle will they consider changing. All right, question seven, last question. How can we support same-sex attracted folks who choose Christ over their sexual gratification? Well, we need to honor singleness. 
Everything is not about marriage and parenting. Marriage is important. Parenting is important. But that's not everything. The church can be a place to facilitate deep friendships. And I refer you to, if, if you are same-sex attracted, you're interested in, in Christianity or deepening this, uh, Wesley Hill, Dr. Wesley Hill, has a, a really good talk on YouTube about deep friendships. He calls it celibacy as a call to love. And you can look that up there. I have the link in the notes. So lastly, we can shut down homophobia. So developing deep friendships, platonic friendships, that's something that we have in the body of Christ and that we need to encourage. And then shutting down homophobia when it rears its ugly head, including gay jokes, innuendos, disparaging remarks. Let the church be a place where people can come and not feel like an outcast. Any more than, you know, if, if spiritually they feel like an outcast... That's probably a good thing. That's probably the conviction of the Spirit. But if it's because I say something insensitive or stupid, then that's on me. As the church, Christ calls us to make disciples of everyone, not just straight people. Matthew 28, 19. May God forgive us where we've fallen short in this area and open our hearts for those thirsting for the living waters that only He can give them. Well, this now concludes our little series on same-sex attraction. We've done a few episodes in a row on this subject, and I have a number of links for you in the show notes for this episode, whether you can access those on your device or see them at restitutio.org. And check out the Beckett Cook interview, his YouTube talk, Sam Alberry's book, his livingout.org website, Rosaria Butterfield's book, Jackie Hill Perry's podcast that I posted, Mark Yarhouse's book on homosexuality and scientific research, and last of all, Wesley Hill's talk called Celibacy as a Call to Love, emphasizing the importance of singleness in Christian ministry and community. So check out those resources if you'd like to learn more about this subject. I hope you found this helpful. My goal was to strike the balance between biblical fidelity and compassion. This is an important issue, and it's all around us in our culture these days. So I, I thought it was important to take some time on this subject, although Rest Studio is not a podcast dedicated to looking at the subject of sexuality. It's much broader than that. So anyhow, Next time, we'll delve into a totally different topic and wrestle with the question, what's the Christian position on refugees in our next off-script episode with Dan Fitzsimmons and Rose Ryder? So stay tuned for that. Please share this episode on social media. Give us a review in iTunes if you don't mind, and we'll see you next time. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.